Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, a mailbag episode, we talk about tax traps, how many accounts you should have, and more. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. And it is time for our February mailbag episode. We made it. We did. Always my favorite time of month. We pushed it right to the end of the month this time. We had other stuff to talk about, but we like doing a mailbag episode at least once a month if we can. And this week, we've got some great questions. We really appreciate it. That helps us out so much when we go to prepare one of these. We've heard from a lot of listeners. We've gotten a lot of support for the tax traps episode and the fact that we do tax planning episode. So I do think when I went on record and said, hey, I think people like these, it seems that we were right. Yeah, you were right. We got a big bump in listenership last week. I don't know if you noticed that, but maybe people were actively seeking out tax podcast material. You know, it's funny, and you've mentioned this to me as well, that you've had people tell you they found our podcast organically. And that's like the most exciting thing is that it's just out there in the world and people are starting to find it on its own merit. And uh, we, you know, that makes us feel really good. We're very proud of that. Obviously, we've been doing this for a while now, more than 107 episodes. I think this is 108. I don't know. I'm, after 100, I stopped counting quite as tight. I think we're, I think we're around that number now. Yeah, it, it's a lot either way. All right. So let's get right into some of our listener questions. And some of them were follow ups to some things that we said on previous shows. Um, so one of the things on the tax traps episode that we mentioned was depreciation on a rental property. We got a question from, I think it's Shanila, and she says, I had a follow-up question. What happens if the rental property changes to a primary residence before it's sold? She added some additional color there on kind of what's going on with her. But Dan, can you take us away on what happens if you move into a rental before you sell it? How does that change depreciation recapture? How does that change the gains treatment? What goes on in that situation? This is a great question. And as always, you should talk to your personal CPA or tax preparer to get the pertinent information that's right for you. Um, But the way that taxes are treated for a rental that is then converted into a primary residence has changed over the years. So today... If you move into a rental and then make it your primary residence and then sell that property, depending on when you purchase the property, you are still liable for depreciation recapture. That is not wiped out by any capital gains exclusion. You are going to have to pay up to that 25% recapture rate on any depreciation that you took. So get ready for that. The other thing that has changed is now you don't, if you satisfy the two years of primary residence rule that would normally allow you to benefit from that 250,000 capital gain exclusion for single, 500,000 for married, you no longer get to take all of that. They divide, they prorate that exclusion based on how many years of qualifying use you lived in that property and how many years of non-qualifying use as in when it was a rental. 
So you're probably going to be looking at capital gains if you're selling it for for a profit. So the the theory obviously would be if I held a rental for 30 years, I've depreciated it all the way down to zero. I'm not allowed to move into that home for two years and then eliminate all of that gain, right? That's that's a closed loophole. Right, exactly. Because that is what was happening is people who were investing in properties would have a long-time rental, then decide to move in for a couple of years, benefit from some of the greatest tax breaks that are available to Americans, and then sell, not pay taxes, and move on to the next one. So if that was everybody's idea, sorry, no longer available to you. Let's go to our next one. This is a longer-term listener. Thank you for writing in to Pete. He says, how many accounts are we supposed to have? How many accounts should a couple have? He said he and his wife both have 401ks at work. They've got IRAs. They've got Roth IRAs. They've got an account with Treasury Direct. Yay, I-bonds. We appreciate that. Also, an investment account that doesn't even include checking and savings accounts it starts to just turn into a lot. It's a bunch of different accounts. Dan, do you have guidance on how many different accounts somebody should have? A little bit. And and it changes for everyone. But doing some quick tallying, I think seven is like a baseline for most couples because you're each going to have an employer-sponsored retirement plan if you're working. You might both have IRAs because those are individual accounts no matter what. Checking, savings, brokerage, that puts you at seven right there. And I think that's that could be a low number. Yeah, it's really about the tax buckets for me. I mean, if if you just get rid of and don't think about the employer accounts, because those are going to stay separate. But if you've got pre-tax relationships, you've got Roth relationships, and then I think of brokerage as kind of the third bucket. So for the average folks, I think you've got five different buckets for a married couple. And then you could have, obviously, all of the ancillary things that go on top of that. So if you're doing your I-bonds direct... If you have checking and I keep my checking and savings relationships separate as different accounts. So, I mean, just me as an individual, I think I'm at probably six or seven at least, just personally. And, and I mean, we haven't even talked about credit cards. And if you have children, college savings accounts, it can add up quickly. I think the key is just keeping them organized. So, to whatever extent you find an institution that you love working with, if you can keep everything under one roof or just have a nice dashboard that everything can link to where it's not overwhelming to keep track of what's going on. And Pete does mention in that email that he uses personal capital. Personally, I use Mint. I've tried some of the other ones. Um, Mint seems to work well for me. I don't ever think it's very good at tracking investments. It constantly miscategorizes stuff. Every time I buy something in a brokerage account, it thinks that I've made some expensive purchase and it tells me that I've blown a budget on something weird. So it's not perfect. I don't think any of these aggregators are perfect. That's the one that I've become most comfortable with because I think it does a pretty good job at tracking my cash. And that's really kind of what I'm using it for. I don't use it for the investment performance needs. So for like a budgeting tool, I like Mint. I think anything that works for you to keep it all straight. And then I also tend to like consolidating accounts every time there's an opportunity to. Just not leaving things out there that aren't continuing to serve my needs. I don't want extra stuff. If I had an old 401k, I roll it and and move that into kind of the most current thing that I'm paying attention to. But yeah, it's it's easy to get to like... I mean, I would suggest maybe 14, 15 accounts. If you've got 529s, you've got a husband, wife, both working. 
it, it wouldn't be hard to get to very, very many. The other thing that I always kind of look at is make sure you're not treating different institutions as the form of diversification. Uh, I've probably said this before, but I've had several clients tell me over the years, well, I've got an account at Fidelity and I've got an account at Schwab because I didn't want all my eggs in the same basket. And then you look at those baskets and they're holding the same eggs. They own the exact same positions. Like Those institutions are not the diversification. If you own the same thing in every single brokerage account, you are not diversified. So in, in my mind, sometimes people think of that institution as being how they're, they're kind of creating risk management. And that, that's a key for me is that look at what's in there. Look through the accounts and make sure that you're doing your evaluation of your diversification really at that level. Not to generalize, but whenever I hear that, it's usually a remnant of old school fears of banking solvency. They're like, well, I don't want I don't want to risk having all my money in fidelity in case something happens there. I may as well have some money in Vanguard or any other institution. Um, you know, and, and I think oftentimes those fears are overblown, certainly in brokerage relationships, but even for banking relationships these days. Uh, a lot of people carry higher insurance limits than than required by law. Agreed. Next one comes to us from Joseph. He came to us via Chris Hill. We appreciate that. Said we have an interesting scenario in our home. Neither of us are spenders, except I do all of the quote unquote spending on investments. My wife hedges her bets, as it were, and pushes back. Now, I didn't completely understand the analogy he makes here, but he says the paddler in the stern can't tell the bowman or bowman, excuse me, how to paddle, but you can make adjustments, bigger J strokes, or hold water to lend a metaphor to it. I'll have to go to any of my friends that used to row crew or something back in high school. Uh, that one was lost on me. I apologize, Joseph. He says, talking doesn't get us anywhere, which goes to show sometimes with love and money, you just have to go with the flow. I thought what he said was interesting because I think what I'm really reading from from Joseph's comment is that he and his wife may have different risk tolerances. How often does that come up for you, Dan? It comes up pretty often. Usually, especially if you're working with someone who's newly married, you'll see that people have different savings habits and different investing habits even if they're both savers you know one might have hoarded a bunch of cash and the other might be more tolerant of putting money to work in the market i thought that him categorizing investing as spending was pretty interesting because i think some people do feel that it's spending as does my mint.com <laughs> that's right that's really funny that's correct uh, hopefully, it's not spending if you're making sound investments. But if you have a history of troubling investments, I think that might be an appropriate use of the word. Yeah, I think coming together on that is really interesting. And sometimes, as a planner, we end up becoming a little bit of a mediator. I've had several experiences where people might think that they have a different risk tolerance than when we actually look at the plan and say, okay, this is the output. If you happen to be very conservative, this is kind of what your plan looks like. If you happen to be very aggressive, this is what your plan looks like. And then this is kind of the opportunity cost. I think that's one of the ways that that people struggle to think about risk is not only not only in what's the downside, but if you don't take any risk, what's what are you missing out on? And the way that I think about investing in general is that if you're going to earn lower returns in the future, you're either going to have to do one of two things. Well, really three, I guess. You're going to have to add more firepower, right? You just have to shovel more coal, basically, and add more more capital 
to make up for the fact that the investing growth is not doing the heavy lifting. Or you have to wait longer to let the investments get to the point that you're kind of targeting. Or you have to choose to live on less in the future because you're not going to have grown your capital enough. Right? Those are really the three options in terms of meeting a retirement objective. So you know, sometimes that risk is necessary. Sometimes it's not. Helping people dial that in and figuring out not only where are they comfortable with risk, where is that risk tolerance, but also how much does their plan need and how much is it benefited through taking some risk. That's a really interesting thing. And it's tough to be able to see that until you really model it out. The other thing in this scenario is if they're both savers, when you get to the point where you need to start spending money, it can sometimes be very hard to wrap your head around taking money out of the pot that you've accumulated and using it for things that would make you happy. And sometimes having someone coach you through that process to show you that it's okay to spend a little bit of money if you've been saving this whole time, like this is what it's there for, uh, is important. And that's one of my favorite roles as a financial planner is to show people that, listen, you can you can reward yourself for the hard work you've done now. You don't need to count pennies anymore. Like This is our retirement budget. If you could spend more, what would you spend it on? And how would you make yourselves happier? Love that. So the next one comes to us from David. David wants to know our opinion on business certifications. For example, fair trade, locally owned, certified B Corporation, especially as individuals and businesses were evaluating where and how to spend our money and time. Dan, does that stuff mean anything to you? The short answer to me is no. I, I tend to be very skeptical anytime I see a certification that you need to pay for. So to be a certified B Corp or to be certified fair trade, those come with costs. So now if you're going to have that, you're excluding really a class of small and local businesses that might not have the resources to do that. Now, one of the things he lists in his email is locally owned. I, I put a lot of weight behind businesses that are truly local community establishments. Um, but ultimately, you know, if I'm going to buy something from somewhere and I'm pretending that I'm feeling good about it, it's because I know who they are. I know who's running the business, who they're supporting underneath them and, and not giving so much weight to something that is, you know, just a large institution that takes money to, to advertise to the public that you're doing good stuff. So I think it's funny, Dan, because, and you're taking a shot at it and for what it's worth, you and I are both certified financial planners. For that sure. means that means a couple things. Number one, it means that we have to pay to be part of the thing. We every year we have to pay those fees. It also means that there is an education requirement. And one of the things that the Certified Financial Planning Board and the Board of Standards does for our industry is they've got awareness campaigns. And in many cases, I think in our business, that is the gold standard designation. Now that's easy for me to say because. I've achieved that standard. So it's it, that's a very self-serving thing for me to say. And I completely get it. Uh, but in a world where the bar or the hurdle to actually practice financial planning is much lower than maybe where we would like to think the standards of planning should be and that quality of care should be, I actually think that that is one that means something. And my takeaway from that is that the designation only means something to the extent you understand how it's achieved. I don't know what a B corporation has to do to become one, probably because I'm a lazy consumer and I haven't done that research. But to me, that doesn't necessarily jump off the page as like, 
oh goodness, that's the stuff that I should be buying. But that's because I'm uneducated on what that means and what they went through to get it. So maybe that's very important stuff. And I simply don't know. You know, I, I tend to think about things like traceability and coffee and and yeah, so fair trade may have one standard, but there's like three different standards that go on in coffee. You can see all sorts of different labels. The more muddled it gets like that, where there's different standards, and now I I can't tell the difference, and some of them just look like letters, and some of them it's just... I have trouble parsing through that. And so yeah, I think it's to the extent that you care as a consumer, the more you educate yourself on it, the better. Yeah. And you use the CFP analogy. The one that came to mind in our industry was I knew someone a while back who was a chartered federal employee benefits consultant. Like Lots of letters after his name. If you read that, you'd think, okay, this guy has put an extensive work in understanding the federal employee benefit system. It was an eight-hour course and you got that designation. So truly just seeing a stamp of some approval like doesn't necessarily mean anything unless, like you said, you're really doing the research to find out what you've had to go through to get that stamp of approval. And then there's also the impact on the ground. Like I don't know how much providers like overseas are really benefiting from working with companies that are fair trade certified or be, you know, I don't know that stuff. I haven't put in the time. I probably won't. Um, but my initial reaction is I, I don't care. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. I mean, it's, We've talked about being conscious consumers on this show, and that's like something I think about. So I'm I'm wondering just aloud as we're recording this, like why I'm not putting more stock into that, and and I don't know if that's just laziness or or what, but um, I think to the extent that those organizations that provide those sort of certifications can tell us why that's important, to the extent that they can educate the consumer base not only on what designations they've achieved, but like what that means, the better. And that I think that's really the key. Yeah. Here's my soapbox moment. As we're exploring this aloud is ideally you're supporting businesses within your community and you have relationships with those businesses and they can tell you what they're doing. So you know where these people are getting their goods from and the process they're going through and that they're treating their employees well because you know those very same people. Like that's the world I want to live in. And I'm I'm sure I can do a better job in my personal life of supporting all local instead of clicking online when I need something quickly. But I I think that's my excuse for not doing the work is I'm I'm trying to uh, trying to build those relationships over time and learn firsthand locally. Absolutely. All right. So I think this is going to be our last one for the day. We have tried to run through a bunch of questions. Final one comes to us from Krista. She says in our tax traps episode we mentioned that you can take your inherited IRA anytime you want within the 10 years. You forgot to mention that you also need to take RMDs on that money if the decedent died after January 1st of 2020. So that RMD I think she's referring to is for the, if somebody already has to take an RMD, if they're already past that required beginning date, not forgetting that you may still have to take an RMD in the year of death. So that is not the inherited IRA necessarily. Once you move it into the inherited IRA, that creates that 10-year window. If you've inherited things as an individual, if you're a non-spouse, I'm sure we didn't go through all of the use cases because it is head-spinning how many different situations you can have with inherited IRAs. That is absolutely a situation. If you are in it and facing it, 
make sure you've got a CPA that can help you navigate that or a tax preparer with uh, like an enrolled agent or something. That is a really critical situation. But Dan, what was your, your thought there? Yeah, I think that was a great question because like you said, I think we did oversimplify just talking about that 10-year rule, which is a newer provision. But in reality, you know, spouses have different rules. If you're an eligible beneficiary, I forget the exact term they use, you might have different rules than the 10-year rule. If you are a trust, you might have different rules than the 10-year rule. So they did not make this simple for anyone to sort out how to deal with an inherited IRA. And I agree that it's worth talking to someone to make sure you know what your obligations are. Uh, But you're right. If you inherited an IRA and the owner of the IRA was of RMD age and had not removed an IRA, an RMD for that year, it does need to be taken out. So I I think that's also true. You need to plan for that. And you don't have just free reign to leave money in if you did not satisfy that requirement yet. And I truly can't remember if we talked about this on the tax traps, but I think that five-year distribution rule is a really important one because I see a lot of people that will try and leave their beneficiary to a trust. They will try and leave their beneficiary to uh, sometimes an entity. I don't see that as often, but even worse is the unnamed beneficiary, which essentially leaves it to the estate. So if you don't have a beneficiary named, you're creating the five-year rule for your family unintentionally. You're shortening the, the time span that they can take that money out by five years. It's half the time. And now they have to drain the account within five years if that beneficiary wasn't correctly named. That's a scary situation to be in. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are encouraged to name trusts as beneficiaries because it seems to allow you more control on to, as to how that money is distributed and used. Uh, but if you're not planning properly, you can have consequences like that without being aware of it. Yeah. More often than not, it makes sense to have the individual people on the IRAs from, from the situations that I've seen. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's a bunch of questions. We ran through them fairly quickly. I hope that this was helpful versus maybe doing kind of a longer deep dive on all of them. We really appreciate hearing from our listeners. Check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for our show. We are sending out the final few mugs. And I've gotten a little bit of feedback on the swag. I think anything unbreakable would be good. turns out some of our mugs have shown up broken, even though I try and do my best to pack them in bubble wrap. So I will try and fix that as much as I can. I heard uh, coasters as kind of a cool idea. I don't know if that... Yeah, if you're out there and you're listening, you go, oh yeah, I would like some coasters. Maybe we'll do that. Uh, I still like the the reusable shopping bag idea just because I tend to need them and I'm never... like I never seem to have enough of those. I always like leave them in random places, which is not where I want them to be all the time. But yeah, if you've got swag ideas for us, let us know. We can send signed headshots of me and Ross. Oh yeah. Well, we could we could <laughs> that could that could be a true gift. We could send the original photo that we took that was going to be the check your balances cover, which is this incredibly embarrassing image of me and Dan that looks like our heads were photoshopped, but it was an actual picture. Yeah, we we uh we were on a podcast called Keyed In a few months ago, and they asked for a photo of us, and I I truly think that's the only photo that exists of you and me together. And so I sent it, and Ross saw that I included that in the email, and he was horrified. Oh man, I I was never going to show it. that to anybody. I I only bring it up as a joke at this point, but it, no, I I do not like that picture of us. <laughs> that which only makes me like it more. So yeah, 
I'm yes, willing it, to shoot that to the world if they want. Dan's excited to sign those and start sending them around the country. Fantastic. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will catch you guys next week.